0: in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, and we'll read verses 1 to 4, and then proceed throughout the rest of the chapter. Luke verses 1 to 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word have handed them down to us, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. From this first paragraph, we gather that he is writing an account. He says right there, in verse 1, that others have done so, and by implication he himself is going to do so, from verses 1 and 4, write an account of the things that happened among them, that is, the things that happened with Christ and the ministry of Christ. We know from this introduction, because it's addressed to Theophilus in verse 3, that the companion volume of this book is the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1 and verses 1 to 3 tell us that that is a sequel to Luke, this book of Luke. It says in Acts 1 verse 1, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering, By many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. From that introduction, also addressed to Theophilus, he says he compiled or composed the first account, which is the book of Luke. Throughout church history, it is unanimous that Luke, the disciple of Paul and missionary companion of Paul, in the book of Acts, which we see from Acts chapter 16 to 28, where there are certain words like we and us that Luke followed Paul and and was a companion of Paul to many of the places he visited as a missionary. It is that Luke who is the author of this book and the book of Acts. Now, from that, we gather that his information is reliable. His account is trustworthy, and we should believe it. We should believe it wholeheartedly because he is explaining that he wants people to believe it, not only Theophilus, but all of us. And also we might note that when he addresses it to Theophilus, it does not mean it was only meant for him, just as when Paul wrote to Timothy and Titus, it was not only meant for Timothy and Titus, but it was meant for the church universally. But he was meeting a particular individual need at the time. That is, in the case of Timothy and Titus, they were pastors in different places and they needed reminders and instructions on how to guide the church. And in this case, Theophilus, apparently he is a disciple and he needs to be confirmed and reaffirmed in the faith so that he believes it and believes it with greater zeal and conviction. This is why... Luke writes to him, and this is why the scriptures are given to us. The scriptures are given to us so that we might believe them wholeheartedly, know the more of the details to confirm and buttress our faith so that we believe it without apology and wholeheartedly until the end. We persevere until the end. Well, in verse 1, Luke tells us that many have undertaken to compile an account many have undertaken to compile an account. By the time Luke writes this book, at the very latest, at the very latest, we ought to note that this book was compiled about A.D. 61. At the very latest, A.D. 61. Because if the sequel is the book of Acts, the book of Acts ends in chapter 28 with Paul the Apostle two full years in Roman arrest or house arrest it says in the book of acts acts chapter 28 that he was two full years in house arrest with his in his own rented quarters soldiers were there guarding him but he was able to see his friends and talk and preach and things like that but two full years after that according to church history he was released for a short time wrote another letter or two and perhaps even visited Spain but then he was captured imprisoned and then executed by nero by AD 66 by AD 66 so if his imprisonment and the book of acts is written all the way up to about AD 63 or 64 and we go back 2 years then this book of luke at the latest would have been written about AD 61 maybe AD 62 but no later than that This means that this was written about 30 years, at at the latest, 30 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. But it is my belief that it was written sooner than that. The book of Luke was written sooner than that. And that he was around and he was compiling things and investigating and calling on witnesses, eyewitnesses, much before that. Just as he says right here in verse 1, Many have undertaken to compile an account. Many people had already done so. And it is very likely that Matthew and Mark wrote before Luke. This is the universal testimony of the early church in the first few centuries that the pastors and theologians believed that the order was Matthew wrote first, Mark second, Luke third, and then John. That was the order, and that's why we have this order here in our New Testaments. It goes Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So many undertook to compile an account. Now this should remove the false notion that the Bible was only transmitted by verbal transmission and memory. And then from that people say they have a vague remembrance of what happened And then they are seeking to uh, scrape up and and compile whatever they can from their vague memories of what happened. Therefore, the Bible and the New Testament are unreliable. That's not the way it happened. That's not the way it happened. We have testimony from many sources from the Old and the New Testament that the, the apostles and the prophets knew that they were writing the authoritative word of God and they did it at the moment. They did it there and then. They didn't do it a- after they forgot about it or, and then had to try to remember and things like that. That's not how it happened. It happened then and there. So when he says that many undertook, it shows that they knew the value of recording accurately and transmitting it to the next generations. Now, verse 2 says, "...just as those from the beginning who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word have handed them down to us. See, those who compiled, the many who compiled, they were eyewitnesses. This is not hearsay. There is no rumor. This is not second, third, fourth, fifth-hand information. These are eyewitnesses who record them and then pass along their eyewitness accounts to the successive generation. Verse 3, they did so. Luke desires to do so. It seems, in verse 3, he says, It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. Luke says that he desires to do the same after having investigated everything carefully. After having investigated everything carefully. Now, there are many who would say that Luke is unreliable, Skeptics do say that, but there are many, many books written that prove that he is quite reliable, intelligent, and accurate in what he writes, both in Luke and in the book of Acts. In fact, we know from Colossians 4.14, it says that Luke is here, he's called the beloved physician, Luke, the beloved physician, Luke was therefore educated and skilled And knowledgeable in his profession as a physician as a doctor medical doctor and he knows how to read and write quite well he knows how to research and to verify facts and this is what he does here he says he's doing it we are not imposing that on the text Luke himself says I'm doing this I checked everything very carefully and I'm writing it out for you carefully from the beginning and he says in consecutive order Methodically, step by step, I'm going to tell you what happened. He calls him, his addressee is in verse 3, the addressee or recipient of this in the immediate context is Theophilus. We do not know who this Theophilus was. We, we do know from his name, likely his parents gave him this name. Theophilus means lover of God, lover of God, which is a, a, a very nice name to give, Apparently, from the expression most excellent, it shows that he was a Roman official. A Roman official. We have examples in Acts 23, 26, 24, 3, and 26, 25. You may recall in that narrative, Paul is constantly brought before Roman authorities, Roman officials, before Felix and Festus and Agrippa. And when they are addressed they are addressed as most excellent. It would be equivalent to what we say today when we are addressing a senator or a judge or someone, we would call him by some other kind of expression like most honorable or honorable senator and then proceed with our statement addressing him. So this is, this is the same way. Likely, he was a Roman official and a convert at that who wanted to know more and needed to be Strengthened in the faith. So, verse 4: so that you might know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Both personally and also because of outside forces from critics and skeptics, it is possible for us to doubt: is the Bible really true? Should I really believe this gospel? I have to believe in things that I have not seen before, that I have never seen. And I have to believe in a Christ who will reappear visibly and destroy this current heavens and earth, have a a day of judgment, place me there by the judgment, and then I have to believe that there's a heaven and that there's a hell, and that by belief in his death and resurrection, I will escape the punishment of hell and I will be with my Lord forever and ever. Now, to many people, that's incredible. For many people, they will not believe that because it's unseen. However, there are many witnesses from Genesis to Revelation, including our book here, Luke, that are written so that we might have the exact truth, exact knowledge of all of this, the things we've been taught, that we might be buttressed and verified in them all so that we might know. Not that we might kind of grope and wander here and there, go off the path and try to figure it out on our own. No. But that we might know and have certainty, full knowledge and conviction that this is true, this is right, and I ought to believe it. This is how he starts. Therefore, now, he tells us some historical details. Placing it in history. In other words, this is not fable or fiction. Verse Verses 5 to 7. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Here he tells us in the days of Herod. Now this Herod was the son of Antipater, or Herod the Great. Most people know him as Herod the Great, who reigned from about 37 B.C. to about 4 B.C. He is the Herod who built up and renovated the temple that Jesus and others at the time they they frequented, and that temple that was destroyed in A.D. 70. Now, this Herod, a, a fact of history, we all know, historians know, this Herod existed. And we know the dates of his reign. It was during his reign that there was the priest Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth. He is a priest. And even Elizabeth is a daughter of the priestly line, the priestly line of Aaron. Now, this Aaron is the brother of Moses, and from the time of Moses and Aaron, about 1500 BC until this period, there was a priesthood. The priests came from the tribe of Levi. The priests had specific and certain duties in the temple and in the most holy place of the temple, and the Levites had certain duties related to the furniture of the temple and the surrounding uh, complex of the temple, they had certain duties. The Levites did that tribe. The males of the Levites, and then the males from the, the family of Aaron within the tribe of Levi. This is Zacharias. So, it also says here that he's from the division of Abijah, identifying specifically as it is outlined in 1 Chronicles 24, In the time of David, David the prophet, he ordered the priests to have divisions, 24 divisions, so that in rotation they would come and serve at the temple. They would live in various places throughout the land of Israel, but they would have a rotation. A certain number of them, according to their families, they would go to Jerusalem and serve in the temple. This is what David established back in 1000 B.C., So for a thousand years, this kind of rotation among the family of Aaron was taking place. Likely because there needed to be further order. And there needed to be also uh, some kind of way to prevent those who maintain a permanent position from usurping authority and boasting in their position. God's always looking at ways to keep us humble. And likely this rotation had, as one of its purposes, not only to have orderliness, but also to have men realize there needs to be a rotation so that we don't have our pride puffed up. So he tells us that Zacharias was a part of this. He further describes him in verse 6, And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. They were both righteous in the sight of God. They were righteous, not because of their natural righteousness, because the Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. Psalm 14, one to three, Romans three, nine to twelve. Nobody is righteous naturally, but they were righteous because God had changed their heart, and God had given them faith, and they believed in the coming of Messiah, the coming of Christ. They believed in His righteousness. That's why they are righteous, in the sight of God. They not only have that faith that reckons them righteous, but they also have a life that is characterized by righteousness. They're not hypocrites, in other words. They're not saying one thing and doing another. They have a life of righteousness before God, in the sight of God. And this is the way righteous people are. They don't hide from God, like Adam and Eve initially did, They don't hide from God, and what many other people do, they like to do deeds in darkness to hide from God. That's not the way they lived. They lived righteously in the sight of God. They knew God is omniscient. He is omnipresent, and He is omnipotent, omniscient. He knows everything. They lived their life that way. Walking blamelessly. In all the commandments and requirements or ordinances, your Bible might also say ordinances of the Lord. They walked blamelessly means that people could not point the finger and accuse them and say, Hey, you are preaching against drunkenness, but you get drunk. You're preaching against adultery, but you commit adultery. You preach against lies, but you commit lies all the time. They could not say anything like that. That's the sense in which they were blameless. It doesn't mean they were sinless and completely perfect because no one is and no one will be until we meet the Lord. And it says here that in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. It may be by this expression, commandments is referring to commandments such as the Ten Commandments and all of the other commandments that relate to the Ten Commandments. And requirements or ordinances relates to The ritual law or the ceremonial law, whatever was required of clean things and unclean things, holy and profane things, and all the rituals related to his duties in the temple, he was faithful to carry those out. He was that kind of uh, a man. And they both were that kind because even the women, they had certain purity laws that they needed to follow, just as the men had certain purity and laws of cleanliness that they needed to, to follow. They've practiced this blamelessly. God is choosing here and a, a, a couple that is a righteous couple, and He's illustrating here that He desires righteousness. He desires us to walk righteously. And it's also to show us from verse 7 that verse 7 is not happening because of their sin. Verse 7 says, and they had no child. And they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. They had no child not because they were sinners and grossly sinning against God. They had no child because God ordained something better for them to wait in their, their case, until this time to give them a child, which would be John the Baptist. So they had no child, not because of their sin. Here it says Elizabeth was barren, and they both were advanced in years. Here we have a triple, a triple uh, dilemma that they face, a triple hardship that they face. One, during Elizabeth's younger years, she was barren. So that was against them. And then now they are advanced in years. They're past childbearing years. And both of them are, both husband and wife. This reminds us of Abraham and Sarah. Same thing. Abraham and Sarah. Sarah was 90 and Abraham 100. And the year before, God had promised to them that she would bear a son, Isaac. In Genesis 17 and 21, we can read about that. Here, just as it happened in the past, God's now choosing this righteous couple to work in them. Even though they express uh, or experience hardship for most of their life. Now is, God's going to bless them through a tremendous miracle. This is the way God often works. He first humbles us. He makes us go through hardships before He exalts us. This happens again and again and again throughout Scripture. Israel had to experience 4 years of wilderness wanderings. They had to be hungry and thirsty because God said in in Deuteronomy chapter 8 verses 1 to 3 that he intentionally made them hungry and thirsty so that they might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. He did that on purpose. He did that to Moses too before that. He made him stay in the wilderness as a shepherd for 40 years. And then he made him a leader, called him into the ministry. This is the way he did it with Jesus. Jesus suffered for 40 days, being tempted by the devil in the wilderness. And then he was able to go and eat normal and natural food. And we'll see later, John the Baptist has to live in the desert before his public ministry. John the Baptist. Many, many examples throughout Scripture. This is what happens here with uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth. Now, verses 8 to 17. 8 to 17. Now, it came about, while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. There, we learn that he is obedient to the priestly service. He does not usurp authority but in the right time and in the right manner, according to the order, and also according to the casting of lots, they cast lots so that no one could say, I want to do it. So there would be no quarrels and squabbles between the priests as to who would have his turn to go and burn the incense, which needed to be done twice a day in the temple, twice a day, in the morning and in the evening. So... Lots were cast, that is, by the casting of the lots, uh, a parallel would be for us like the flipping of a coin, heads or tails, then that ends all disputes. This is the way we proceed often, and this is the way they did. They cast lots so that on whomever the lot was drawn, he was ordained by God to go into the temple. This is the way they did it. And this promoted their humility. Well, God chose Zacharias. We know God chose Zacharias because of what is about to happen. Because Zacharias in the right time is going to be met with the angel Gabriel, who will announce this wonderful news that he will bear a son. And it will not only be miraculous, but he will have a very significant ministry. A ministry, as Jesus said, that John the Baptist was the greatest of all the prophets because he's the forerunner announcing the coming of the king. The king is coming into the city, and there's a forerunner. There's a messenger ahead shouting, there's the king coming. This is what John the Baptist will be. So he's ordained to burn the incest, incense. Verse 10, And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. The people, the common people, could not enter the temple like the priests could enter the temple and like the Levites could enter the temple. They had to wait outside. And as was their custom, they do rightly, they pray. They pray so that the mercy of God, since the priest enters, the priest enters as a mediator between God and the people, they pray so that the prayers of the priest will be answered and the people will be blessed by God. This is why they pray. They are in unison, as they should be. And verse eleven, and an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw him, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will joy will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord." We know from verse 19 that this angel, he identifies himself as Gabriel. This angel is Gabriel back in verse 11. The angel Gabriel appears standing at the right of the altar of incense. Right there where Zacharias would be offering the incense, suddenly the angel appears. Naturally, in the presence of God or a heavenly being, there is fear there is trembling, there's intimidation. This is what happens because that which comes from heaven is holy and pure and sinless, perfect. And we who are sinful, if we have the right attitude towards God and the things of God, we will immediately have solemnity. We'll have seriousness about us. We will know that we are unworthy creatures and we will humble ourselves and tremble before God and the messengers of God. And this is exactly what happened to Zacharias. Verse 12 says, Was troubled when he saw him, and fear gripped him. Just as Isaiah says, uh, Woe is me, for I am ruined. For I have seen the Lord, the, the, the Lord of hosts. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Just as Isaiah had that kind of fear that gripped him, The same with Zacharias. They had the proper and natural, normal response. Contrary to this, the wicked, unbelievers, when they think about God and when they come in the presence of God in whatever manner, whether that is to read the scriptures or to come to a worship service, they come with frivolity. They come callously. They come flippantly into the presence of God. They don't think and meditate upon what they are about to do. They're about to worship the King of Heaven. They're about to worship a holy and righteous God. And that they need to plead and depend upon His mercy for their life. They don't think about it like that. But Zacharias did. And all righteous people do it this way. Fear gripped him. But notice verse 13. The angel Gabriel says, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. As God is prone to doing, God, when there is humility, He exalts us. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will exalt you at the proper time. When we humble ourselves, God will give us those words of grace, forgiveness, mercy, Love, compassion, He will do that for us. And this is what He does here. He often says, do not be afraid, so that peace might overwhelm us and consume us, the peace of God. We are forgiven. We have mercy. You're not going to die because I've come here to give you some good news. I've come here to announce forgiveness, or in this case, to announce that you're, you are going to have a son, a miraculous son. This, was, this is what God does. He offers this to us. And this is, in this case, they'll bear a son, and the son's name will be John. The name John in English is actually quite an abbreviation. From the Hebrew to Greek and Latin and European languages and English, it has become quite abbreviated, J-O-H-N, and even an unusual ending, the H and the N. It comes from a Hebrew word uh, root, two words, from a word for the Lord or Jehovah, Yahweh, and then also a word for grace. Uh, The word for Yahweh is the Lord, translated in the Old Testament, and then the word for grace is the word for, uh, it it is the word hain or Hannah, the name Hannah of the Old Testament in 1 Samuel chapter 1 means grace. Or there's a shortened form of it with just the H and the N, a guttural H and the N. That's the name that makes up John's name. That is, the Lord is gracious, or the grace of the Lord, or the Lord has given grace. Something of that nature is what this name means. And this is why, especially with the manifestation of God's grace in Christ, why this has become such a popular name among Christians. Because of John the Baptist, John the Apostle, Um, this is why the name is so important. And he is going to be the proclaimer of this manifestation, the incarnation of the grace of God in Christ. This is likely the reason he's given this name, John. And uh, verses uh, 13 and 14... He had been petitioning God, probably not in the temple because when he goes into the temple, he's petitioning as a minister should whenever he is doing his public ministry. He always prays not for himself, but he prays corporately and he prays for the people. He prays we and our, he doesn't pray I and mine, he prays we and our. Likely, when it says your petition has been heard, he had been petitioning God During his youth For a child And now God has decided Many years later To answer that prayer This is often the way God does it He did it that way with Abraham And Sarah as well And many others He did it that way He waits a long time Before he finally answers our prayer Not that he always answers our prayer The way we want and during our life But many times he does and, he, and when he does do so, verse 14, you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. This is what happens. This is what should happen. We are glad in the things of God because God is a faithful God. He answers our prayers. And this is the right response of all true believers. There's gratitude. There's thankfulness. And we have joy and we thank God for what he has done for us. This is the way believers respond whenever they experience the blessings of God. Now verse 15, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. To be great in the sight of the Lord is in another way to express his excellent virtue. Excellent virtue. This is the way in in other words like Boaz and Ruth, they were Boaz was a wealthy man but he was also a virtuous man and Ruth, she was a poor woman and a widow but then she had the virtue this is why she's called a woman of excellence woman of excellent or great virtue Boaz was a virtue and she was a virtue and the two married this is the same or similar kind of expression he will be great in the sight of the Lord just as Zacharias and Elizabeth were both righteous in the sight of God verse 6 he will also be in verse 15 Not only that, but he will have a special calling. He will drink no wine or liquor, no wine or liquor, just as Samson in Judges 13 to 16, and also others were enabled and able to do in Numbers chapter 6. It has the law of the Nazarite, the law of the Nazarite. Apparently, John the Baptist practiced such law. God had ordained for him to do so. Drink no wine or liquor. That was one. So he would be especially devoted to God in this way and manifest his devotion in that way. People would know. And we know later from his accusers that they said that he does not eat or drink, so he must be uh, full of a demon. He must be demonic. This uh, man who raves and craves in the desert and preaches repentance all the time. He must be some wicked and and crazy man, demon-possessed. No, that's not what it was. He had a special devotion to God. Not only that manifested on the outside, but on the inside, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. Filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. Yes, before the day of Pentecost, there were people filled with the Holy Spirit. And here is one such example. But this is a special example because while yet in his mother's womb. That must mean that God chose John the Baptist while he was in the womb, converted him, gave him comprehension, and filled him with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. God has that ability. Just as he has the ability to choose angels who are not born in this world, First Timothy 5.21, there are chosen angels. He chooses angels. He can also choose people and reject people and manifest that cho- choice and rejection while they're in the womb. You may recall Genesis 25.23, which is cited in Romans 9, 9.11-13, 9, that God chose Jacob in the womb but rejected Esau. Yes. This is what happens here. And his ministry is characterized in verses 16 and 17. He'll turn many back, many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. To turn back means to preach repentance. It's the same thing. Call attention to the people's sins and turn them away from their sins. Preach against their sins and the consequences of their sins and call them to follow the Lord, to walk in the right path of the Lord. We'll see more of this in chapter 3, where he is preaching repentance. This is his duty. All true prophets of God preach repentance. False prophets preach peace and safety 100% of the time and tell the people, oh, no, 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 that's not a sin. You're you're fine and good before God. Go Go away, just give me a little money, and then go away in peace. Peace and safety, go away. Give me some money so I can eat a lot of good food and have a lot of wealth, but otherwise, you go on your merry way. God's okay with you. That's what they teach. But a true prophet preaches repentance. It includes repentance. It's not exclusively what he preaches, but he certainly does preach it, and he doesn't shy away from doing so. And verse 17. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him. The hymn of verse 17 is Christ. It is Christ Christ and John will be his forerunner. He will prepare the people to hear about Christ and to meet Christ in a way that the people have not been prepared before. In fact, there was a long silence. The last of the prophets of the Old Testament was Malachi, about 400 B.C. Malachi, Ezra, Nehemiah, those were the last righteous people who were prophets and who wrote Scripture about 400 B.C., and up to this point, the Jews in the intertestamental period, until the time of John the Baptist, they acknowledge in their own writings outside the Bible, they are, they are miserable and they cry out to God and say, Lord, you haven't sent us any prophets anymore. Since, since the past, there are no prophets. We have nobody to preach to us and to call us to you. They bemoan that fact. But now, God raises up a prophet... To wake them up, to jolt them, and to make them realize they need to prepare themselves for Christ. Verse 17, this one will go in the spirit and power of Elijah. He will be just like Elijah in the book of Kings. From 1 Kings chapter 16 to 2 Kings chapter 2, we read of the account of the ministry of Elijah. And what do we read there? The bold Elijah goes boldly and courageously before kings and others, to preach repentance, to call attention to their sins, and even in the face of many false prophets, 400 prophets of Baal and 450 prophets of Asherah, as it says in 1 Kings 18. This is the way John the Baptist will be. He will be fearless and tirelessly preaching repentance in front of evil people who have the power to execute him. He'll do it just like Elijah did. But what's the benefit? What's the benefit of preaching repentance? What is the good result? Verse 17 says that the hearts of the fathers will be turned back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. There will be harmony, reconciliation between children and parents. He's quoting partially, he's quoting from Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. He's quoting from there where Malachi says, I'm going to send to you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And that Elijah that Malachi meant was John the Baptist because Luke says here, in the spirit and power of Elijah. John the Baptist is not Elijah reincarnated. False religions teach that. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does not teach reincarnation. It teaches the death of the body, the survival of the soul, and then the reunification of the soul and body immortally on the day of judgment when the resurrection takes place, the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. There is no reincarnation or transmigration from body to body. The Bible means that John will be like Elijah not that he will be Elijah. And what does he do? He brings harmony and reconciliation between repentant children and repentant parents. Repentant children and repentant parents. We know that this is the case because in Matthew chapter 10, 34 to 39, Jesus said, do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I, came to, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. What's he mean by that? Jesus means that when the parents or the children don't believe, they will fight each other. They may even put each other to death. But when they both believe, when parents and children believe, there's harmony, there's reconciliation, there's love, and there's a wholesome, sound family environment. And that's what he came to do, to teach everybody to learn to love one another and show their love for one another and love of God. And this is how they will make themselves ready and prepared for the Lord. The Lord desires His people to be loving people, harmonious people, people who understand how to love one another and get along with each other. Then they reflect Christ. Christ. Then they reflect that they are disciples of Christ. A new commandment I give to you. Uh, just as I have loved you, so you should love one another. By this, by this will all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. John thirteen thirty four and 35. This is how we are a people ready and prepared for the Lord. To truly reflect who God is. Let's proceed. Let's further see what happens between Gabriel and Zacharias. Verses 18 to 23. And Zacharias said to the angel, How shall I know this for certain, for I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years? The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you do not believe my words, which shall be fulfilled in their proper time. Now, Zacharias is perplexed, but he has a lack of faith in his perplexity. This is the problem. You see... Zacharias, he asks, it seems, in verse 18, a valid question. How am I I supposed to know that this is going to happen? I'm old, and my wife is old. How can this happen? What he did not do was believe. When the angel said it, the angel must have been sent by God. He's in the temple, after all, where he sees the glory of the angel suddenly appear, and the angel says, do not be afraid. He didn't lose his life which he should, should have and could have in the temple of the Lord. It didn't happen, so he should have had faith. He had momentary unbelief. He had momentary unbelief. He did not realize that this angel, Gabriel, stands in the presence of God. Standing in the presence of God means he's a ready minister of God, a ready messenger of God to tell the people on the earth what God wills, what God announces. He did not understand that. He did not believe it. And this is why he is struck with muteness. He was unable to speak until the time is fulfilled. This is why he did not believe. It says it right there in verse 20, because you did not believe my words. Now, we will see this next time that Mary also asks a similar question. She asked a similar question. How can this be, verse 34, since I am a virgin? Mary asked a similar question. However, we know that from verse 45, she asked that question in faith, not in unbelief. Verse 45 says, And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. Mary asked a question in Sincerity and in faith, but Zacharias didn't. Momentarily, he had unbelief. So, verse 21, And the people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his lay in the temple. Yes, this dialogue takes place, and they wondered, Could he have been struck dead? Is he gone? Is he ashes? Because a fire of the Lord came out, just like it did in Leviticus chapter 10 and struck down Nadab and Abihu, the two sons of Aaron, who offered strange fire before the Lord. They were offering incense, but with a fire that was a forbidden, prohibited fire, mixed with that incense, and they offered that to God, and God struck them dead immediately. But in this case, that's not exactly what happened. There was a punishment that happened, and there was a dialogue that happened, but something else. Verse 22, but when he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And it came about when the days of his priestly service were ended that he went back home. They understand what happens. They see he signals to them. Perhaps he also wrote messages to them as to what happened, that things were okay, and that There were things to expect. He goes back home after he does his duty, his order for the tribe of Aaron, and he goes back home. Verses 24 and 25. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when He looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. So, Notice here, Zacharias and Elizabeth have to obey God. As is often is the case, when couples are old, they don't have relations anymore. They don't have. And in this case, they had to obey. They had to do it in faith, believing that she would become pregnant. Elizabeth was not in the temple Yet she had to believe what her husband said. Even though he was mute, she had to believe whatever he communicated in writing. She had to believe that. And Zacharias had to believe it. And he started to believe after he was struck with this muteness. He believed. And because they both believed, she became pregnant. She became pregnant and they rejoice. She keeps herself in seclusion until she is big enough in order to manifest to the people and take away her disgrace. Take away her disgrace. As is normal and not uh, necessarily right and good, but as is normal in many societies, when a woman is barren, they think there's a curse of God on them. There must be something wrong with them. They must have sinned. There must be something deplorable in them that God has kept them from children. Many people think that way, and sometimes that is the case. Sometimes God does do that. For, uh, for example, remember Michal, the wife of David? She, she spurned the work of God in David, and God kept her barren until the day she died. So that is the case sometimes, but not always, and not in their case. Now they're able to rejoice. All right. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Our Father, we pray that you'll give us the kind of faith that we need. We pray, Lord, that you will build us up, show us, Lord, how to trust you, how to walk righteously, how to believe everything that your word says. Lord, we do not have typically coming to us angels or anything supernatural, but we do have your word, Lord, and you have shown us and taught us that if we do not believe Moses and the prophets, we we will not believe if someone rises from the dead. Therefore, Lord, grant to us understanding and illumination. Grant us your spirit to believe everything that your word says. To believe because we have a God who is in heaven, who is the creator of the ends of the earth, whose understanding is inscrutable, whose power is beyond our comprehension, who is able to do far beyond what we can, can ask or think. Grant us that kind of faith and help us, Lord, to live righteously and to believe the gospel wholeheartedly. Make us people of faith. Make us people prepared for the Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.